You're listening to another episode of Classic Movies Live, the pre-recorded show where we're talking about all of this year's Best Picture nominees at the Oscars. And today we are getting close to the end. We've got something real special for you. Today we're going to talk about American fiction. This was the winner of the TIFF People's Choice Award at uh, TIFF this year in 2023, which so far, the last several years, anyone who's won the TIFF People's Choice Award has been nominated for Best Picture at the Oscars. I don't want to say it's a guarantee, but it's been a pretty good predictor so far. This movie's an interesting one. I don't think I said this during the episode, but it's kind of primed. It's like specifically a good one for uh, two white guys to talk about. So um, you'll, if you've seen the movie, you know exactly why I'm saying that. So yeah, I don't know. I think it's pretty fun. And we do get the, um, we do start talking about spoilers pretty early here. And we do mention it. Uh, I just want to leave that there and pretty much just... That's really all I have to say before we get into our conversation. I really liked this one. Um, I really liked the movie. I really liked the conversation it spawned. I think this is one that uh, I think this is one there's not too much disagreement on. I'm pretty I'm pretty happy with um, I think both Pierre and I liked it quite a bit. But I am going to leave our actual thoughts to past Jeff and Pierre who will regale you with their thoughts on American fiction right after you hear the song Monk Is from American Fiction. This is by Laura Karpman, who is currently nominated for Best Score at the Oscars. And uh, it's a really good score. Here's a little piece of it. Here's a little taste. another episode of classic movies live a pre-recorded show where we talk about bafta winners today we're going to talk about a movie that is nominated for best picture at the academy awards and was if i'm not mistaken nominated for best picture at the bafta awards and did win best adapted screenplay at the bafta awards yesterday that was that was yesterday as of this recording pierre uh what do you think of the bafta winning movie American fiction. I mean, I could see why it win best screenplay. I, I think it's it's a well written movie. I'm not. I I wouldn't. It, it feels like in because this is a particularly strong year. I think Oscar wise, it feels a relatively unambitious. You know, um, but it's still a great watch. And I think in in a few other years, this might have been a stronger contender. Uh, when I say other years, I specifically mean 2020. When <laughs> All the all the nominees were pretty pretty basic in my opinion, or most of them were. 
yeah but no it's a it's a fun movie i think it brings up some interesting points about right like writing in from the perspective of a of an african-american um but i feel like it never it never sticks the landing if that makes sense but that might, i think that might be the point of the movie too is there really is no answer to like how to perceive uh the writings uh of black black people in america you know I, I think I agree with the thought of what you're saying, but I think I might like phrase it slightly differently. Like, I don't think this movie was unambitious. I think it like was maybe too ambitious. It tries to tackle a lot and I really liked what it was able to do, but I don't think it necessarily meshed as well as I wish it had, I guess, in certain points. I see that. Well, maybe it's like, I think it's ambition makes it unambitious. <laughs> Does that make sense? Because the I think we talked we talked a bit about it the other day where the uh, on the Contrazine podcast the movie seems to have two stories. One is the story of a a black writer in America who is tired of his work having to be judged based on his race. A lot of uh, books that succeed by black writers around him, from his perspective, seem to be ones of of struggle of perseverance against white people and that's kind of the scope of what he's he he believes black people are allowed to write about um, mm-hmm. and make money from and that frustrates him so there's that there's that part of the story um and then there's like a pretty unconnected other half of the story that's just about someone coming home to see his family and and having to deal with or slowly bonding with his family again after kind of being lost in his work for a few years and, you know, discovering things that a new relationship with his brother dealing with his mother's dementia and the death of his sister. Um, Mm -hmm. And uh, both stories are done well, but neither gets enough time or focus to really become ambitious and really get to that next level. If that makes sense. Yeah, I guess I see what you're saying there. Both are fine. I like both of them. I feel like if we did have the time to spend with... If we did have more time to spend fully with one of those, it would be like that particular plot point would be really great. But like, as it is, they they don't so much weaken each other. They just both take up time and we've only got two hours to work with in this movie. Like, it doesn't need to be longer. It shouldn't be longer. But like... There's, there's only so much time to spend with the different parts of it. Yeah, exactly. I think the both, yeah, both aspects have a really cool, I, I, I think especially, I think the, the part about, you know, the joke in the, the writer aspect is how um, Monk, who's the main character played by Jeffrey Wright, who puts on a great performance, basically puts on a persona as a joke, I think too, or he right he puts on a persona as a joke uh to satirize the other black writers that that he sees around him and he actually becomes insanely successful on a level that what is unseen by many other writers and completely unexpected by him but he has to maintain that persona which kind of i think that in itself is a is a very interesting movie premise and could have been expanded to a lot more um but i think with the limited time it gets it kind of mostly just comes down to like Jeffrey Wright's performance is essentially just like, I'm going to do something stupid. And then 
white people like it. And he's like, what the hell? And then he does something <laughs> stupid or later. And then, and then white people like, he's like, what the hell? It's just kind of that over and over again until that plot line just kind of wraps up. And then they don't even know how to end it because it has a very conceptual ending that Jeff, I know you like, I, I found it a little, a, a little bit of a cop out because I, I would have like to see some kind of resolution in the movie and it's multiple plot points, but all of the plot points just kind of keep going. And then the movie just kind of ends, you know, and yeah. I didn't, I was invested on a lot of these plot lines, which is a good thing. And I would have liked to see some payoff for them. With, uh, without spoiling too much at a certain point at the end, like the movie, re- the movie reaches a point where after that part, like probably 10 minutes before the end of the movie, it no longer commits to anything. And it still kind of works conceptually. Like he said, it's a very conceptual ending. That's what I like about it. But also at that point, nothing that happens matters, which like I can see how that would, you know, not work for some people. Yeah, I I feel like they're, they were building towards something that we never get. And I guess it's, I don't know if it's based on the writer's life in any way. I obviously, I don't think the exact events happened, but I feel like, I don't know. It's like they wanted a a very, because at the end, there's like a, like they're kind of building towards like a Hollywood ending of like, oh, he gives a great big speech about, about how like he was lying the whole time that this is the, I'm the real writer. And, uh, and then his girlfriend comes in to see him and then she's like, wow, he's telling the truth. And now I understand him. And I get that they wanted to avoid that ending because like, again, the whole movie was almost building to that. But it kind of reminds me of uh, She-Hulk. What was the She-Hulk? She-Hulk, where they kind of do the same thing where it's like it gets meta. And I don't mind a meta ending. I think a meta ending can work where they you kind of break the fourth wall. But that ending still has to resolve stuff in my opinion Mm -hmm. or else or else it's just like it's just like a it's like a family guy gag that's a really weird reference but it's like how family guy gags have nothing to do with the main plot it'll just be a cutaway for like 30 seconds and it's like that's kind of what we got here where i guess technically you could argue it does it's like a symbolic ending to the movie where it's kind of saying like everything's ridiculous and this is just life but i don't I guess I didn't get, I didn't get a great feeling from that. I think other movies have done it better, like No Country for Old Men. Um, but arguably, I didn't like No Country for Old Men's ending when I first saw it either. So maybe I'm completely wrong, and I'll like this ending a lot more if I see this again. Uh, but before we get into it, what's interesting? Thank you for bringing up No Country to Old for Old Men because that is a movie that, when it was nominated at the Academy Awards, won Best Picture, which this movie is nominated. This movie is nominated for Best Picture, Best Actor for Jeffrey Wright, Best Supporting Actor for Sterling K. Brown, Best Adapted Screenplay for Cord Jefferson, and Best Original Score, which is the first nomination for the composer Laura Karpman. So I wanted to briefly bring up what this movie is nominated for just before we go into it again. And I think, I mean, I think we have, I don't think we've spoiled anything too much yet, but I I keep listening back to our episodes and realizing we're not putting in spoiler warnings. So I'm just going to put one of those right here. Cause like, 
I think this is an interesting movie to talk about, if especially if we uh, don't care about spoilers. Yeah, so like, okay. <laughs> let's uh, here's here's a spoiler warning. There's the, there's all the formalities out of the way. There's there the go. things it's nominated for, and a spoiler warning. I think we're good. This movie, um, I think that the way that it's put together, it's very much kind of like a producer's type movie where you know they just the, our main character sets out to make a really bad joke and show everyone that how stupid they are and nobody gets it. So he just like keeps failing upwards uh, despite all of his best efforts to not to, you know, actually fail. And um, the way you put it earlier, it's like, it makes it sound like the joke is repetitive and it kind of is, but I think it kind of gets, I think he pulls it off pretty well just about every time. Like every time he does something just a little bit more stupid, the way that the joke lands when it actually like pays off somehow is uh, it's I I laughed every time. I thought it was very funny. Like halfway through, you know, he he writes this book that is extremely pandery. That's literally just every black stereotype. Tries to sell it, and he gets it to, and he sells it to the book company that like or the book publisher that he's never been able to publish with for an ungodly sum of money. And then when they're just about like when it's just about ready to go, he's like, I'm calling the whole thing off. I'm going to change the entire name of the book from my pathology to a one letter profan to a one word profanity. And they're not going to keep it because it's going to be too race. It's going to be too racy. They're not going to be able to sell it to stores. And they're like, yeah, you know what? It's bold. We'll do it. I don't think he doesn't even try to sell it. Isn't it like he just gives it to his agent and then his agent kind of likes it and then he submits it? He gives knowing. it to his agent. His agent is like, this book scares me. I don't want to put this out. I'm, I'm, I'm worried someone might like it. And can I tell you, can I say it's performance sorry. art? And then he just sends it out. And his agent manages to sell it. And that's where like him and his agent end up sort of flip-flopping back and forth on oh, parts okay. of the issue. Because <laughs> right at the beginning, Monk is like, you got to sell this to everybody. Sell it straight. Uh, make it work and then he actually manages to make it work and he's like no hold on i don't want this <laughs> yeah I, I i agree like i i wouldn't say it's a bad thing i i think it i think the repetitiveness prevents the movie of achieving bigger things if that makes sense because i feel like it kind of it kind of relaxes on the on the i want to say the laurels but i don't know if that's the right word <laughs> the it relaxes on how funny those jokes can be, you know, because again, it just keeps getting more ridiculous. But I feel like that almost distracts it from some of its main goals. Like, I think the most interesting parts of the movie was um, his conversation with Issa Rae's character. Um, Centara Golden. Centara Golden. And it's a very awkward, weird, uncomfortable conversation for both of them because they're essentially he's essentially trying to criticize her work without her knowing wait how do i say this she was saying she didn't like his work but she doesn't know he wrote it because they're talking about mm -hmm. the book that he ghost wrote essentially um and he oddly seems offended by it because he was like i only wrote this in his head he's like i only wrote this book because you wrote a very similar book that i didn't like and um you know, it's a very intricate conversation. Like there's a lot of layers to that. And then it's also that conversation is kind of the heart of the movie where it's like, that's when you kind of monk finally comes to some, some sort of 
resolute i'd say that's kind of the climax where it's like he's finally seeing another perspective and i think one line that really stuck out to me was i think it's the last line in the conversation where he's like i i feel like i'm the only one that sees the potential of black people in america to do to do something more and then i think her comeback is or her argument to that is potential is saying that what you see in front of you isn't good enough and that's just like like i will remember that that's that's such a golden line you know that's that's a perspective i didn't because i was totally i i totally understood what monk how monk felt you know because we see basically his own perspective and his frustration with like everyone in his life throughout mm-hmm. the whole movie where he feels like the only sane person you know and you know, like now that i'm thinking about that line i think it also you know applies to the family side of his life where he was there's scenes where you kind of he he he, he seems so frustrated with his family what arguably because he he sees more potential in his family but he doesn't see what's he doesn't appreciate what's there in front of him um which i think is kind of mirrored in his relationship with his brother played by sterling sterling k brown right um yeah where another scene that really stuck out to me was when i think they they're coming back for someone's wedding um i feel bad i can't remember the is it their maid or their it's their maid i think her name is lorraine i pulled it up uh, it is lorraine her name lorraine. is lorraine okay um they come back for lorraine's wedding and he bumps into his brother who turns out he's been living at their at their cabin and like basically he's he's discovering his newfound sexuality (laughs) with two men and monk has to bring his mother into that and he's just like he's really mad at his brother and he's he's just like get out of here like i don't want to see you mother doesn't want to see you but then lorraine comes in and she she welcomes the brother and there's actually a very heartfelt moment where you know monk's first instinct is to see like the negativity in that situation but then eventually it kind of it because of the you know because of lorraine and the love uh of his family that situation turns around to something very positive very quickly because someone sees the potential in his brother and then he starts to see that you know well and um, i mean just tie it back to Centara's quote it's not that she's seeing the potential she's seeing what is actually there like she's seeing who his brother yeah. actually is where he's thinking he's seeing the potential but all he's seeing is what his brother isn't exactly yeah and i think he kind of sees that that's a it's a self-inflicted thing because he's also very frustrated with himself the whole movie he wants to be a famous author he wants to he wants to be known for his work and you know just being a good writer and proud of his own work isn't enough he needs to be successful and praised by everyone and that's why he spends so much time away from his family and not talking to them so yeah like again like that one conversation was so was so impactful to the movie and i just wish we had more of those uncomfortable interesting moments you know because that's that's what made the movie and that's kind of what sort of connects those two plot lines but like that conversation that's like a three minute scene you know Mm -hmm. and and it doesn't it i feel like it never is able to reach its full potential because they they don't talk at all before that in the movie he just knows of her or they talk but like in a very formal matter and and like um, with other people like it's always as part of yeah. a group conversation yeah because they're focused on judging books but i they think like i would have really liked to see him talk to her more 
Like maybe that you could argue, maybe that conversation would be a lot less impactful if that was one of many conversations between them. But that felt like the only time in the movie that really challenged us as a viewer, um, Monk as a person, and we don't get enough of that afterwards and we don't get enough of that before either. And I, I really wish we could have got more of that because that that scene felt like the true realization of that part of the story or almost the whole story of like a monk's character. And uh -huh. I just I, I wish maybe it's a good again, maybe that's it's a good thing that I want more of that. But I, I, I don't think the movie other parts of the movie were good enough to not have more of that, you know. I think kind of like what Dakota said on the, I, I'm hoping that I'm remembering what Dakota said, right. On the episode of ContraZoom we were on, like there's the, there are those two sides. There's basically, it's basically trying to balance that family drama story and the satire and just like neither side is quite strong enough. Cause I like, I like both of them and I do like their interaction, but like the, the satire part, it seems like the satire, like the main satire at the core of it in that plot is like Monk and Sintara and Monk's agent. Like those three are the main characters of that. And they are kind of relegated to those scenes. Like anytime one of those people would come up, I'd be like, all right, perfect. Here we go. We're back into the funny bits. But then like the, um, they're very as much as they thematically comment on the family drama side as well, I think the family drama side is just like kind of disconnected in a way that is unfortunate. I don't know how like Sterling K Brown, uh, I don't know how Cliff could like fit better into the satire side. And I don't think he needs to, but like when I would see the family, it's like, okay, well we're out of the satire. Now we're going back into the family drama. They feel like yeah. they're, it kind of feels like it's two different movies and mm -hmm. they thematically comment on each other a little bit, but they're just not tied together as much as I wish they were. Cause like, I really yeah. wanted to see more of Sintara. And I, uh, I think that you're right that it might lessen the impact of that final conversation. If she was, if her and Monk were talking a lot more, but I still think that there could have been more Sintara without, you know, she could have even been her own, she could have honestly been an entire separate plot if this movie yeah. was like entirely the satire part. Yeah, it's 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 not like the satire part needed. There was a lot of meat to work with there. Like, yeah, they didn't. I you could argue that they needed like something else to to help extend the runtime or amplify the movie. But no, like you said, there was a lot to work with in that in that section of the movie and. I guess like I, I did see this one argument, I think it was on Reddit about how you could look at it from a meta lens and say that he, the writer had to write about him, a black man being marginalized as a writer for not being able to, wait, how do I say this? The writer is writing a movie about a black man being marginalized by white people to make a certain type of black art. Uh, so that he can use that story to also tell a very normal story about a family not related to race that is just about a family growing up that the movie says and what might be true black people black writers don't usually get to write about that makes sense so you could mm. 
if from that meta context, I kind of see what's going on. If that's true, I don't know if that's true or not. If that is, that's kind of, that's very clever. And I will give them that. But I think if that was the goal, I think there needed to be more meat on the family side too. And more resolution, you know, because it, it's essentially like, like looking at the two plot lines, they kind of, I think they start kind of at the middle and then they, they diverge more and more throughout the movie, which also doesn't help it. But it's like, the one side is he just keeps like his family life just keeps getting weirder and weirder. And then the other side is the American, the, the satire side is also just getting weirder and weirder. And there's no, there's no arc. There's no roller coaster to it. It's just both sides are just kind of going wherever there's no control. And I think, I, I think if we could have those two plot lines, but they both kind of interweaved more and they had a bigger sense of climax to them. I think it, this could have worked very well. And then that meta, that meta lens would also help amplify it of like this writer finally got to tell a story about just his family, but he had to use the marginalization aspect to sell that script. But yeah, I, I think there wasn't enough. There were, there were moments like I liked, I liked that scene actually where his mom is with his agent, I think, or his manager and uh, his agent. Yeah. And he's across the street talking to the film director in his character. And then he sees, he sees an ambulance and he's like, and he has to run out in character to, to go, to go help his mom. But then the director is like, oh my God, he heard a siren and he just had to run. This guy's like the real deal. <laughs> like, he's a fugitive. And that, that's one, that's like a, that's an amazing part of the movie. Cause that's totally a, one part where those two worlds clash. And it makes it a lot more interesting, you know, like, like in that scene, there's, there's the subtext of he's worried about his mom. So he's lo he's looking out the window a lot. There's, and he's also has to be in character for this director. So he has to be in character talking to a director about the exploitation <laughs> of, of his book while also thinking about his mom in the side of his head. And that's such a, that's such an interesting concept for a scene. And so like, both the plots didn't, when they intersected, the movie was a lot better mm -hmm. and I liked, and I liked it a lot more. So there was something there. And again, I, I feel like we're, I, I feel like I'm, I'm shitting on the movie. It's a great movie. I just like, it, there was really something really good there. I feel like it could have been an amazing movie if you just changed a couple things in my opinion. Yeah, I like what you're saying about when they intersect because I agree. When the movie, the movie's strongest moments are, you know, some individuals, it's Theus Erasing. That's the strongest moment. But aside from that, the strongest moments of the movie are where the two plot lines actually don't just happen at the same time, but actually influence and like work off of each other. Like that one scene where you're saying, because like his character that he's putting on for this director happens to all all of the things that he needs to do for this character happen to also be things he would do if he was really worried about his mom which he is so like mm -hmm. that feeds those both of those two feed into each other really well there but as we get closer to the end the movie's two plots kind of diverge uh more and more and i did want to talk a little bit about the ending maybe not mm -hmm. like among other things the specific ending scene but basically, I would say that the movie is essentially over the moment him and Issa Rae stop talking. Once they've had their like speech and Issa Rae gets her uh, mic drop moment, 
that's basically the end of the movie because at that point in the context of the movie it becomes unclear what is actually still real when there's more stuff happening yeah that's a good point i think the movie does (laughs) other than that actually no yeah i think all the important plot points kind of stop after that uh after that scene you're right but specifically, they stop. They don't necessarily wrap up because what yeah. I'm no- what I'm remembering too is like at, after that point, everything else possibly takes place in his conversation with the director. Like it's unclear how many of the actual events that just that happen afterwards happen afterwards. But like, kind of out of nowhere, uh, what you don't realize when you get to the scene, the the final book judging scene is um the family stuff is over now like the the lorraine's wedding is the final scene with any of the family drama and it's just Mm -hmm. over after that point which i mean is a little sad because like there's a lot of things that are still left open and they almost resolve afterwards like one or two of the most important things almost resolve but don't really and they don't get that chance you don't notice that that's just a thing that's not going to resolve anymore yeah i i I guess, like, you could argue that, like you said, that maybe there was a climax. It just, it didn't feel very climactic, like the wedding. Um, I did really like that one scene between him and his brother, though, where his brother's essentially, like, I think it's just, like, let people in. Like, like stop being so hard on yourself and let people love you, essentially. Like, and he's referring to the girlfriend that he got into a fight over. That, that's a very powerful scene, but I feel like that, that scene in itself was a setup for a climactic ending again for the overall plot. But it, like, we don't get that. We don't get that ending. And mm-hmm. I think that's unfortunate because I, I, I think Monk's character arc still needed something else. Like he, we need, I, I feel like we needed to see him. I would have liked to see a change in his life where, where he becomes less harsh on himself and more ex- accepting which you could argue he does but i feel like the the whole girlfriend's whole point in the movie was to symbolize him being able to accept someone someone's love in his life that isn't mm-hmm. his family you know and we don't really get that and again i don't know if this is based because because we get a in the the, the meta ending we kind of get a, a throwaway line where he says my girlfriend never actually texted me back or talked to me ever again after that, which it feels like when he's saying that it's like, this is based on someone's real life and that this was someone's real experience. And they didn't want to betray that, that part of themselves, of their, of their life. You know, they didn't want to make up an ending where the girlfriend does come back, which I respect. But I, I, again, I feel like I never really, I didn't really like a lot of the girlfriend scenes. Um, I didn't feel like they added enough. Like they weren't, to me, they weren't that fun. I thought he had a lot more chemistry with his like with his family, with his brother, sister, mother. Um, the girlfriend stuff kind of felt like a little derivative. But to me, the only reason it would all be there is so that you can set up that ending. Um, mm-hmm. And without that ending, I feel like a lot of a lot of that screen time is almost wasted. And that the yeah. last conversation with his brother, in a way. I think it's one where like the very ending kind of implies some. I don't know, basic resolutions to stuff like that, like like what you're saying, but it doesn't, I don't know, it doesn't really wrap it up. It doesn't wrap up those plot threads. And I think that, like, I think that might actually be what I like about this ending is that it is, 
an ending that refuses to commit to anything and just sort of and like very goes all in on being completely ambiguous because i think that that is part of the theme of this movie is that like the the thing that is being brought up is like the movie is about like i mean among other things like a major theme of this movie is the performative activism of white people a lot of the times and Mm -hmm. like the ways in which race sort of imposes performativity on everyone involved in different ways and like i think that um you know it's it brings up interesting points about that and the resolution to that is uh there's no answer like that's always going to exist and what can we do about it but notice it and i think that you know by not committing to a full ending at the end it uh kind of says something about it like it doesn't give you an answer but it's like yeah well there is no answer which i think is interesting but um it makes for a kind of unsatisfying ending in a lot of ways yeah i i do think that non-ending can work like you said the coen brothers have done it again to be fair i i didn't like those endings the first time so i just when i when i i like to think i'm more open-minded about it now and I just don't really see the true purpose behind not having an ending here, if that makes sense. I feel like in the Coen brothers, like if you look at the big Lebowski, it's because the point of that movie is everything's like the whole movie was stupid. Like nothing makes any sense. <laughs> and, like, and like, that's why there's no ending to, you can't really end that movie because the whole point is there is no story essentially. Like everything's random. And with like good, no country for old men, it's, it's that like, it's a very, a very harsh realistic movie of um like the bad guy gets away with it sometimes you know and like and evil evil triumphs and it's like a this is a new world and like like the ending is essentially the guy being like i can't keep up with it anymore you know it's not the same world as it used to be but this i like i think i understand what they were going for is as, as in like there is no end to that argument like, I, I think the movie's trying to say that, like, at least from the conversation with Issa Rae, it, it felt like the point is that there is no, it's just about your point of view and what you're comfortable mm-hmm. with and what you want to do um, and how you want to deal with uh, white people. <laughs> like, And, you know, and, and do you want to thrive with white people supporting you or do you want to thrive in your own way? Or like, it's, it's, up, it's up to you to decide. And you could argue that the movie like the movie embraces that by saying there's there's no point to make anymore because that was the point is mm-hmm. everyone has their own thing going on it's just it that the ending it it gives us doesn't really reflect that because it it turns it back into the satire of like oh he just goes back to the director and he makes the movie so is it implying that he is okay with it now or like it just felt so disconnected that he just goes back to the director and he's like let's make cuz I think it's implied that he left the speech. He never gave a speech. His girlfriend never showed up. He just left the room and then he went to direct the movie. I don't really know what that says about his character other than maybe he now agrees with Issa Rae. But then the comedy of that scene feels like it's too abstract to make that point in a solid format. So in the end, it just kind of comes off as feeling like we don't want to do an ending. So here's kind of this weird meta ending about exploitation of black culture to wrap the movie up well yeah here's the three options yeah the ending that probably happened the ending that he wants 
or the ending that'll sell, which is supposedly, which is the last one. Yeah. Oh, no. Okay. Well, now that you frame it that way, I guess that kind of makes sense. Yeah. It's just like none of the matter. Yeah. And I guess the only real weakness of the ending is the movie has made its point and then it makes another joke that it makes the same joke again. And I think that Mm -hmm. the same joke lands again. Mm-hmm. But it comes after the movie's made its ultimate point. Like, it doesn't actually need to make the joke again. Yeah. Yeah. I will argue that it's better than, like, the cliche speech ending would have been really bad, too. <laughs> like, yeah, I'm not true. saying they should have done that ending at all. So, no. yeah. I, I do think, I, I guess now that I think about it, that the the real ending is almost him driving off with his brother. Where yeah. it's like, you can see he's made peace with his family. He appreciates his family now for what it is um he gives a little nod to the the extra or the actor in the slavery uh plantation outfit but it's like a respectful nod because i think it's like he accepts that this is just part of the industry and it's what that guy's doing to make money so yeah exactly like he's not gonna frown upon that but i almost would have just liked that because i think the weirdness of the scene before kind of takes away from that those very two very subtle moments Mm mm-hmm it's a bold ending, though. I, I do like they, they took a risk with it. So I, I it's, think that's cool. Yeah, they could have given us any one of those last three endings that they showed. And yeah. like, it would not have been as good of an ending. But all of those are endings that could be used if they wanted to. Yeah, um, which I like. Dude, I will never get some of those moments are really I will never get over that scene where I mean, it's it's so on the nose, but it just works so well where they outvote the two black writers. <laughs> like, I, I just think we really need to listen to black voices right now. Say yeah. the three people, the three white people in the room to the two black people in the room. <laughs> like it was like, like literally like the, the blocking and the framing of that scene was so like on the like it was so obvious. The dialogue was so corny, but also like it honestly felt almost re- like realistic in a way oh yeah um like and that's like that's what makes it so funny yet kind of sad at the same time is that is that they people can say that and literally not understand the irony of that the irony mm-hmm. and the complete unfairness of that situation yeah i think like the reason that joke works so well Every time it's told, and it's told a lot in just slightly different variations in this movie. The reason that works so well is that, like, these are barely heightened versions of people that I've met. (laughs) Like, I know (laughs) these people. Yeah. Well, I I feel like, I I feel like, uh, I mean, maybe I'm one of those people, too. You never, like, it's it's really hard because they don't even realize, like, they don't realize it, you know? So I I think it's kind of nice to maybe take a second to internally think about the things you the content you consume and uh and uh and how how it affects your viewing of certain cultures i guess so normally i would want to start at the beginning and then go all the way down in terms of what it's nominated for but actually we just talked about the scene where he drives off into the sunset with his brother and Mm -hmm. the thing that i love most about that scene is just like the very subtle very nice little jazz score that's going on underneath. Mm. I really love this score. And like, I think it's, um, I think it's one that's subtle. It's not a character the same way as like poor things is score is or mm-hmm. poor things score is 
or like extremely loud and all over the place the way that like Oppenheimer's score is, which both work for what they are. Like I think I, I think that these three, American Fiction, Poor Things, and Oppenheimer, are probably my three favorite scores of maybe the whole year, actually. But like I think this one really it really elevates basically every scene in the movie. Like the score is there and it's really helping things hit the way they are. I think this is like a, what's interesting is that about this score, I was listening to it. I was like, obviously listening to it while I was watching the movie yesterday, but I was like really trying to pay attention to it. And it's just like a very, very good traditional film score. It's just mm. under, under, uh, underscoring all of the, uh, all the different scenes that are happening and it really changes the tone of the scenes of the scenes as they're going on. When he starts writing my pathology, the way that the score like shifts into sort of an awards baity, like an awards baity score that would be in something like a nineties ghetto thriller or something sort (laughs) sort of shifts into that. And it really helps to sell the tropes that he is fully like exploiting in that moment. Yeah, that's cool. I, I actually I want to listen to the score again now because I, I didn't notice those like subtle details on my viewing. But that's cool. Yeah, I I think that's a good that's a good way of uh, storytelling through music. Yeah. And like it's one that I, I will say, like right now, I know that as I was watching it, I really loved it. And I know and I remember specific songs, like a few of them specifically, but like. I will say it's one that doesn't I don't think that it stuck with me permanently afterwards like I can't there's only one song from the score and it's the very last one that I have like stuck in my head all day but beyond that like I don't have a lot of the the score didn't stick with me after the movie but during the movie it was like a big part of the reason that the tone and the delivery of all of the scenes worked the way they did. And it okay. is a solid score. Like, I want to go back on Spotify and listen to it. Yeah. Probably will do that today while I'm working. Oh, cool. Um, yeah, I don't know. I, I feel like I need to rewatch now to <laughs> to grasp that. Um, do you think it has a chance to win best best score, though? I think it's... What's the what's the ContraZoom um, terminology here? <laughs> I think it's, it's probably... It's probably a, lar- a, a long shot. Like, yeah. I don't think it's... I think it's, I mean, it's up against Killers of the Flower Moon, Oppenheimer, and Poor Things, which are all, like, phenomenal scores, but also all of them are, stick with you a lot a lot more and in different ways. Yeah. Killers of the Flower Moon is very, like, it's, that score rocks, actually. That score is awesome. And it has a great narrative behind it, considering it is a posthumous nomination. Uh, Oppenheimer is, like, very in your face like you can't forget the songs in Oppenheimer which yeah. uh works by the way like it's, it feels like I'm saying that as an insult but I don't but I don't mean that I think it is a really good score and poor things is like a full character in that movie the the yeah. way the score plays out yeah. I think that American fiction is very very solid as a score but I think that it's in an extremely stacked category and an extremely and a category that is stacked with scores that are like very hard to ignore where American fiction works mostly because it's not in your face. I don't want to say it works because you ignore it because you don't, but it's not in your face. So like 
you don't it doesn't stick with you the same way as Oppenheimer or Poor Things does afterwards. Yeah, it's it's much because the the movies it's a subtle movie, right? So I think it, having yeah. like a a hugely character I don't know a characteristic score would kind of take away from the movie itself. Oh yeah, it's not what the it's not what the movie needs. Yeah, I think that if this movie had a score that was like Poor Things, it would not have been nominated for score because it just wouldn't have fit. That actually yeah. might have ruined the movie if it had had something like that. Yeah. So no chance, unfortunately. I I think it's unlikely, but I would be happy yeah. to see it. Yeah, I, I agree. I don't think I don't think it stands a good chance. Best adapted screenplay, though. I I could see, I I see potential there. I think. I think it's a real. I think it's a really good screenplay. I think it's this movie. Looking at the screenplay, based on I, I don't want to dwell too much on things that I've already said, but like I think that the screenplay here gives me confidence that I really want to see anything else that Corey Jefferson does. Like mm-hmm. this is his directorial debut and this is, I don't know if it's his very first screenplay, but it's, <clears throat> he wrote the screenplay for this. Yeah. So it gives me a lot of confidence that he's got some excellent screenplays in him to come. And this one was really close to, I mean, it was really good. There's mm-hmm. a few things in it that like I wish had worked a little better but like, if that's the worst I have to say about it, it's a good screenplay. Yeah, I agree. I think I think it has. I mean, Oppenheimer is there, so the little <laughs> and poor things actually. But I think it could win because it it feels very much in its own lane in terms of screenplay. Never mind. I, it's a very normal s screenplay compared to all yeah. the others. So that's why I think it stands a chance actually. Because and it, it did kinda... win at the Baftas as well. Oh, perfect. which I don't know how much that. <laughs> I don't know how much that does matter for the Oscars, but well, it's, it's not insignificant. Yeah. Yeah. It's a sign that there's potential there. So actually, yeah, I think it stands a good chance. Um, and you're right about Corey Jefferson too. Like I, if this is like his first movie, I, I read he's, he's been, he's worked on some pretty good TV shows of over the past few years. But if this is his first movie, that's insanely good. And mm-hmm. I'm excited to see what else he can do. Oh yeah. He wrote nine episodes of Watchmen. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So he's he's got experience for sure. Yeah. But this is an but like excellent debut for sure. Yeah. What uh oh yeah. So now maybe these are things we can talk about a little more. Uh supporting actor for Sterling K. Brown. I was very happy to see Sterling K. Brown nominated. I don't think he has a chance to win, but he is like <laughs> He is very good in this. I know I've seen him in other stuff. I don't know why I'm blanking all the time on what else he's been in, but like I loved him in this movie. He's really, really good. Yeah, I, I thought he was like amazing. I think he had great chemistry with Monk. Honestly, like all the, the family, that's what kind of sucks is just like the whole family had amazing chemistry. Mm-hmm. Um, is like him. I was so sad when his his uh, his sister passes away at the start. That was actually, I forgot to mention, that's a heartbreaking scene. And, and so real though like it literally comes out of nowhere and it just kind of yeah whoa yeah i was I, I was literally about to say it just comes out of nowhere like they're laughing yeah. and then she dies yeah. which wow yeah it's it's crazy and I, I feel like they deal with it in a very real way where it just feels like everyone's in shock you know and i, I feel mm. like that's that's how anyone any family would react because that's that's in, like that was a horrible thing um, yeah, I mean, I was in shock. Like, you see them, you know, you see something happen. They go to the hospital, and then, like, 
she's just dead. Like you don't yeah. realize you realize it in stages of what's even going on. Yeah. Yeah. It's crazy. But like they had amazing, I, I loved all their scenes together. I'd like, I, I wish she was in the movie more, but unfortunately uh, due to the scripts, she wasn't. But I think it's crazy that I was like, how could anyone, now that she's gone, like how is anyone else going to beat their chemistry? And Sully K. Brown does like a very good job at at least matching the amount of chemistry they had. You know, and uh, he he really brings a lot of scenes to life, you know, and despite his relatively limited screen time, he does a great job. I just I wanted more, you know, and I wish he intersected think, more with the, the other parts of the plot. Yeah, I think he gets a really good, basically complete character arc in this movie. Yeah. Like, you know, he's a he's a newly out gay man and like him sort of coming to terms with that and not being ashamed, but like him being able to sort of work through what that means, not just to him, but to his family and be like, no, this is me. Yeah. I think he's got, he's got some really, really good scenes too. He's got some really good little monologues. Like Issa Rae has that big monologue at the end, but right before that Sterling K Brown is talking about like how, how sad he is that his dad never got to know the real him and you know he uh don't remember exactly what it is but monk tells him something like well what if he hadn't what if he wouldn't have accepted you and he goes well then he would have rejected me at least mm-hmm. not the real me yeah. someone he didn't know yeah yeah i'm 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 extremely paraphrasing to the point where i'm robbing all of those <laughs> scenes of their of, I... of their impact but like sterling k brown brings it there they're yeah. really good yeah it's I, I argue like he does just as good a job as Mark Ruffalo and Robert Downey Jr. Considering the amount of screen time he had, which was probably like a third or a fourth of what they had. So yeah. like that's very, very impressive. And I, I think potentially if if he had more screen time, he would he would be really uh, fighting for that nomination or that win, you know. Uh, yeah. But yeah, it's, it's the way it is. <laughs> I mean, he happens to be in what I think might be the strongest category this year. So, yeah. like, <laughs> but it's I'm I'm very happy that he's one of the five in that category because yeah, you know, sure. there's yeah. there's no one in there that I don't like seeing. They were all great, and Sterling K. Brown is a very different performance than them. Like, unlike Mark, unlike every other character, every other actor in his category, he's the only one who's not the villain of the movie. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> he's just kind of a, a lost man figuring yeah. stuff out, which I like. Yeah, and I, I, I don't know what I've I, what I've seen. I feel well. I saw. I remember him from Black Panther. I guess. Yeah, I'm trying to look. There's nothing really else because. Yeah, interesting. I don't know. Anyways, he was really good in that. Uh, same with Jeffrey Wright. I, I think I, I didn't. I, I think he had less to work with just because. Again, his his character was essentially just exasperation. Like that was his whole character, um, and frustration. But I think I don't even know if it's it's just the way he is. That like I think it works. His exasperation works and never feels annoying because he's a very just feels like a very warm man. You know, like he has a he. There's you can you feel like a sense of kindness. In Are his, you talking about Sterling or sorry, uh, Jeffrey Wright? Okay. 
there's a sense of kindness in in the uh, in his personality. So even though he's acting annoyed the whole movie, it's it's balanced out by that inner inner feeling of like there's 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 good in there. There's a happy person in there. Just gotta like he's just gotta let it out. Mm-hmm. I think it's a huge testament to Jeffrey Wright as an actor that uh, he works so well in this movie, considering he's the only person who has to directly work with both plots. Like Mm -hmm. he has to carry the satire part and he has to be able to work well in the family drama where Mm -hmm. Sterling K Brown does have the advantage that as much as I would like to see him in more, he only has to be the heart of the family drama, Mm -hmm. which, you know, he doesn't have to do much with the satire. Not really. Mm -hmm. He's like in one scene where he even comments on it really. Yeah. Jeffrey Wright has to do both and he pulls it off. He does manage to do to be really good in both of those, though it does like stretch him a bit thin. But I mean, he's I've seen him in so many things and he's always so good and it is very it is very cool to see him uh, get a best actor nomination for something cool like this. Yeah. Or just in general. Yeah. Yeah, he's a great actor. I I I don't this didn't feel like an Oscar winning performance, I guess, is the only thing I would say. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I don't I don't see him winning this one. I mean, he's, yeah. he's up against some strong competition, too. But yeah, I, don't know, I guess they're just like I said, like his character never goes beyond a certain a certain type of exasperation <laughs> again for the and, whole movie, which which works for the movie. But I think it prevents him from really flexing his muscles as an actor, if that makes sense. Well, because he's involved in the whole movie and the whole movie is about him, like he has the same strengths and weaknesses as the movie. Yeah. Like he has very strong, he has a very strong character arc that never resolves because Mm -hmm. the movie doesn't resolve. So, you know, he doesn't get to finish his character arc as close as he gets. And like part Mm -hmm. of that is the point, but like, you know, it leaves him on a cliffhanger kind of at the end. Yeah. Which I, that's a good point because that might be why Sterling brown's uh performance felt more uh i felt more connected to was because he he actually did have kind of his own mini arc in the movie that felt very resolved by the end of it so uh we we saw all the stages of that and he was allowed to flex different acting abilities throughout that which i think helps kind of solidify him as a as a great performance um Mm -hmm. so yeah not to say I think Jeffrey Wright was great in this, and oh, I can't I see amazing. anyone else in this role. I think I think he worked very well. It just yeah, it was missing that that thing that would really help him beat Killian Murphy or yeah. Paul Giamatti. You know, anything else to say about American Fiction? Uh, no, it's it's a great it's a great movie. Yeah, I I, I loved watching it, and um, and I like I think I've 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 learned something from this. I I hope. <laughs> I hope I learned to to be more um, thoughtful when when consuming when consuming media about minorities. Or I don't I don't like the term minorities, but other race, other cultures. Yeah. I think of the uh, I think of the best picture nominees this year. It's probably the easiest to watch, but I don't say mm-hmm. that in a bad way. Like it's not super tense. It's there's a lot going on. There is like, this is a movie with purpose as much as that means anything, Mm -hmm. but like you can just watch this and feel and kind of feel good. Like Mm -hmm. hopefully get a lot out of it as well. But like, this isn't like killers of the flower moon or 
uh, Oppenheimer or even to a, or, or the zone of interest where you're done with it and you feel, you feel like your soul has just left your body. Like yeah. this is a movie where at the end you kind of, you, you feel, you feel good. Mm. Uh, it's not quite a feel good movie the way that normally implies, but I would say that the way that that normally implies is not exactly a compliment. So I think that this movie is like, it's an easier watch and I really appreciate it being here. I think it's a, I think it's an easy watch, but a good watch. There's a lot of stuff going on. I'm, I'm very happy to see it in best picture. Yeah, for sure. I think it's a, it's just, it's, it's in a tough year. And oh, yeah. I, I feel like I'm happy it's nominated because that I, I, I don't know if I would have watched this if it wasn't, I don't want its odds of not winning to frown upon it as a movie, if that makes sense. It's just kind of, it, it didn't feel like it was made to be an Oscar best picture winner, if that makes sense, you know, mm-hmm. but it just happened to be nominated. Although I did see someone point out, and I don't know what the actual stats on this are, so I can't say if this is really true, but I did say, see one person point out on Twitter that this is the first movie ever nominated for best picture at the Oscars that includes the words Oscar bait somewhere in the screenplay. It doesn't? No, it does. It like, does. Okay. there's a point. There's a point in the movie where he's like, "Oh yeah, this guy makes Oscar Beatty movies. Go talk yeah. to him." <laughs> and like, it's the first time that any movie that's mentioned Oscar bait has been nominated been for nominated. Best Picture. Oh, okay, so now it has to win. It it should. Like uh, that makes it genre defying or an, <laughs> an Oscar defining movie. Yeah, I don't know. I wonder how. I wonder how uh, the director felt being nominated. You know, because it almost feels like. The movie is because the movie is about the exploitation of of black storytellers, and then the Oscars, which I'm guessing is largely a white a white voting audience, is is choosing this movie to be best picture worthy. You know, I wonder if there's well, like an irony in there. I, I mean, maybe a little bit, but the thing is, too, like the Oscars have become a little more diverse since since a few years ago there was a big push back i think it was the black panther year actually mm-hmm. but like on the one hand maybe it's ironic for a movie that calls out oscar bait and performative like wokeism i guess to be nominated for best picture <laughs> but also it's just a good movie yeah, so yeah. like if they're you know I'm sure that the point of this movie wasn't lost on the people that were voting. And that's probably a big part of why it's there. Like it's not here because people didn't get it. I think that it would be ironic for it to be in best picture. If there was a reason to assume that the reason it's there is because the people that voted for it are the exact like caricatures of white people in this movie where they're better like, Oh yeah, we need to listen to more black voices. So we'll make a black, so we'll, we'll nominate a black voice. Like, I don't think that's the reason it's in Best Picture. If, it, if there's yeah, a no, reason I, to believe that was the reason, then yeah, it would be very ironic. Yeah. So what's our last word, Pierre? Potential. 